This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, Diplomates fans. I'm Misha. Now, this is the Chinwag Christmas special with Hagar Shamali. Now, apologies, I've already broken uh, my own promise to you where I said that we would be having a pattern of shows where we would do my traditional Diplomates interviews followed by the Chinwag episodes on a rotating basis. Now, the last episode was a Chinwag. This one's a Chinwag. Uh, I did have an interview scheduled, but um, it's a really big one, and I want to release it in the new year. So it's my show, so please bear with me, but sorry for going back on my word. Now, thank you to everyone uh, who's given feedback on this new Chinwag format. We're really glad that you love it, and uh, if you haven't already, do be sure to be following Hagar uh, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on YouTube, and her show, The Oh My World Show. It's a great show. It gives you what's happening in the world in just five minutes, so... uh, if you have a short attention span compared to podcasting, you will love it. Now, we cover an awful lot of topics here. The Democracy Summit, Russian troops in Ukraine, Putin's demand of NATO, the boycott of the Beijing Olympics, uh, bans on imports from Xinjiang, Russia and China getting together, Facebook being sued due to genocide, UK politics, COVID vaccines, Squid Game politics. So there's plenty in there. Um, really do hope you enjoy it. Now, thank you to everyone who's listened to the show uh, for the year. It's been a bit of a rough year, so thank you for sticking with the show. Thank you for your support. Please have a great Christmas and New Year with all your friends and family. And uh, if I don't see you personally, uh, I will see you in the New Year. Please keep tweeting questions to me uh, and comments. I do love your feedback. If you haven't done so already and you're new to the show because you're coming from Oh My World, please rate and review the show. It really does help. Uh, Without further gibbering from me, have a great holidays. Enjoy the episode. All right, Hagar, welcome to our second Chinwag, the Christmas special, I'm calling it, because uh, we are recording it in the week of Christmas. How are you? I'm good. I'm in the spirit. I'm excited to nerd out on these issues right before the holidays hit. Right. Well, okay. Well, given there's quite a bit going on, um, I thought a good place to start, and we sort of flagged this as the last thing we talked about in our last chat, and subsequently things have now happened. So the Democracy Summit. Big deal or big bust? What do you reckon? Um, I'll get your opinion first before I give my own. Um, Obviously, it was held about a week and a half ago. What do you think? Well, a little bit of a big much to do about nothing. So I don't think it was a big bust or a big deal. Um, And, there, you know, there was a lot of drama about it here. Uh, in the press, uh, the press at both liberal and conservative media found a lot to criticize, in particular, who was and wasn't invited to the event. And it was a little bit confusing. I mean, I think if I were controlling this event, I'm not sure that I would have invited Pakistan personally, in particular, uh, Philippines as well. And, um, and, and, you know, especially if they're excluding Hungary Hungary is also going down this authoritarian path, but if you've got countries like Pakistan and the Philippines, anyway, it comes off a little political in my opinion, but um, I also just didn't think it did harm is, is the thing. It does, you know, it, it, the, the main criticism that you saw, and I struggle with this personally, is that it was almost like Biden was creating this nice and naughty list. And right, who's gonna be involved in, in the group, who's in the club and who isn't. 
And those who criticized it, some, you know, on one end, I would, I would tell them, listen, this is not the United Nations. That's what the United Nations is for. The United Nations has a member spot for everybody and everybody has a vote. And, and frankly, that's what often holds the UN back is when you have these thuggish governments that vote against right. policies to interfere in, in conflict or, or, or impose sanctions or whatever. So that's not, this is not the United Nations. And that's, this was about celebrating democracy and making a statement. And so you're only going to do that with, with countries that are democratic or, or seem like they want to become more democratic or that you could push them to become more democratic. Um, but it's also just not surprising what you're seeing in the aftermath of the democracy summit, where you see authoritarian leaders around the world starting to unite themselves. So it really is creating this nice and naughty list. And I struggle with that because as somebody who, who believes very strongly in human rights and in sanctions, obviously, and in isolating these thuggish governments to try and change their behavior, I also don't wanna see another cold war. So it's a little bit awkward. Well, that's right. I mean, and we can talk about some of the responses. I mean, I think overall, Look, you have, you've got 100 nations coming together to talk about the democratic franchise, which has not happened for a long time. But, of course, when you have 100, anyone in the room, get 100 people in the room, try to get them to agree on anything, let alone 100 different nations. And I agree with you, the the democ- well, the lists of nations got a lot of focus, so who was invited and who wasn't, and you know, are, the genuine, are these nations genuine democracies or not genuine democracies? But I think overall, I think it, it did more good than, than harm. And I think, you know... It, it's a good idea and it certainly sort of is a stake in the ground for the Biden administration to say, look, you know, we're kind of back in the game of promoting democracy and the democratic values. But I think we had to have limit, you know, sort of cold shower in terms of this is going to be the big moment where democracy fights back from having a rough couple of years. But uh, I think it's at least a, a good starting point. Now you sort of mentioned, you know, the bad guys, as it were, naughty list, um, uh, the autocrats sort of working together big thing that's happened in recent times is this uh, uh, Russian troops uh, amassing along the Ukrainian border, you know, Putin and Biden caught up. Um, there were demands of Putin of the United States, of NATO. Uh, how do you see that issue at the moment? Because obviously there's been the annexation of Crimea a number of years ago. Now I think it's 2014. Uh, you've had the civil war playing out there where uh, Russia is uh, not participating, uh, but you know, using its so-called little green men, grey zone interference, where it is essentially putting Russian troops to try to stop Ukraine from joining NATO or getting more affiliated with the West. And, and Putin's made it very clear that the idea of Ukraine joining any Western institutions like NATO or joining the EU is a red line for him. So how do you see that issue at the moment in the context of what's playing out? Yeah, so this is the one that where I don't think that the drama is overplayed um, because it is a very precarious issue. And what's so fascinating about it is that it's unearthing all of these old historical grievances that clearly, you know, it is how President Putin views things. And I think that is also interesting in and of itself, right? So first, the over 90,000 troops you have along the Ukrainian border are, are very concerning. And the U.S. intelligence says that uh, that they expect it to go to 175,000 early next year. It's a huge amount prepare. of troops. I mean, that's more troops than we're using the Iraq invasion by the United States. So it's a huge number. Yeah. Yes, well more. Yes, way over. Um, and you could do a lot of damage with that number of troops. And and I wouldn't, you know, I am I have always been one of the types to not 
uh, be an alarmist. I right when when things were really tense between the United States and Iran under President Trump, I was the first to go out there and say everybody needs to cool it. There isn't going to be war between the U.S. and Iran. This one is much scarier, and the reason is because President Putin is using these troops as a, at the end of the day as a message and to get to to reach an end goal, and that end goal boils down to NATO, right? At the end of the day, and he's come out on Friday. He came out with these demands. And the demands are absurd, um, right? So the demands include things like removing any military equipment uh, or infrastructure put in place in Eastern European states that are members of NATO, uh, promising not to include, to expand further east up to Russia's border. That really is a message about accepting Georgia and Ukraine. Um, and so making that kind of promise, um, ensuring that no military assets are placed in non-allied states like Ukraine in particular, um, right? So these types of demands step on the sovereignty of other states. And so they're, they're completely absurd and NATO shot them down right away. And, but, but the thing is the fact that they made that proposal, they say, the Russians, they say that it's because they feel that the West betrayed Russia uh, following a promise that they interpreted as a promise in 1990 that NATO would not expand into Eastern Europe or close to the Russian border, um, into former Soviet states, really. And, you know, so they're they're bringing up something that was misinterpreted, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago and uh, 30 years ago. And I'm good at foreign policy, but not at math, obviously. And <laughs> <laughs> and the the what's what makes that so scary is that it's like you've got two ships sailing in the night, right? It almost feels as though no matter how many meetings you're gonna have with the Russian government, between the Russian government and Western states, you're just you're starting from two totally different points and you're speaking two totally different languages. And maintaining this balance of power is really what's gonna end up preventing any kind of military aggression. But achieving that balance is difficult. So how do I mean, because Biden said basically in his call with Putin that there would not be, there'd be economic sanctions, more severe economic sanctions on uh, if Russia were to invade Ukraine on an official basis rather than an unofficial basis. Uh, but he has said there'd be no military support for Ukraine from, certainly from the United States, but you can assume that means NATO allies as well. Um, how do, you know, how... Is that the right formulation? Because obviously this isn't more than just Ukraine. Uh, you know, what Putin would love is to show NATO to be a toothless tiger, right? So if you were to invade, you know, one of the NATO allies you know, in that Baltic region um, is what he sort of hoping that NATO doesn't exist. So how do, how do you get that balance right if you're the Biden administration? Right. You know, so having I was on the other side of crafting the sanctions against Russia when it annexed Crimea and started supporting separatists in eastern Ukraine. And they really were very carefully and deliberately formulated to hit certain sectors of the Russian economy without having any blowback on U.S. and European businesses and also to leave a lot of room left. And so when President Biden comes out and says, you know, there are all these economic sanctions we could pursue that we didn't, and we're not going to hold back if you invade Ukraine. There is a lot they could pursue, in particular regards to Russia's oil and gas industry. So they really could crush that industry for the Russian government. Um, and and that's what he's getting at. But I, I have never been a fan of the U.S. government showing its cards too much on what it will and will not do on the, mili on mil on the military front. Uh, I thought that 
we made that mistake with Syria back when I was director for Syria and Lebanon. Obama's red line you're talking about? Even before that, so a year before the red line, um, we we were receiving a lot of pressure from Capitol Hill on whether or not we would militarily intervene somehow in Syria. And President Obama came out in a press conference where he was posed this question as to, are we thinking about military options? And he came out and said, no, no way. This is not an option that's on the table. And authoritarian leaders only understand the language of military, right? That's if it's, if you're not going to threaten the use of military options, then they interpret that as a carte blanche to do whatever they'd like. And it was a very noticeable difference between before he made that statement and after as to how President Assad in Syria pursued violence on the ground. And so when President Biden said that, I didn't love it, but it is Russia and it's not Syria, right? So the difference there is that there was never going to be a US-Syria war. With Russia, they wanna be more careful. And I understand that, but at the same time, I just don't see how President Putin could actually believe that Ukraine would become a member of NATO anytime soon. Because even though NATO doesn't wanna come out and promise that Ukraine will never become a member, and they shouldn't, um, there it's not gonna happen anytime soon because Everybody knows that it would create war and nobody wants to go to war with Russia. Um, but he, it, this boils down again, it boils down to this, NATO is as a thorn in Putin's side and he doesn't wanna see it get bigger. He feels it genuinely threatens Russia. It does. He's not totally wrong about that, even though it is a an organization that is defensive in nature. By having all that military infrastructure up against Russia's border, of course, it's going to undermine Russia's security. Um, and that is singularly what he's focused on. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you square this circle. Ultimately, this is going to be a tough one. I am I am. I am relieved that there are these channels that that we have with the Russians. Right. That and then that President Biden talks to President Putin. Um, but I also see this as the beginning of a really rocky, really rocky year ahead. Well, speaking of rocky relationships, uh, the other big autocrat in the room, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping, uh, been some big activities. You know, we were talking about Peng Shui and what does that mean? We had the uh, the Women's Tennis Association uh, saying that they were going to you know, not pursue uh, uh, sport um, in mainland China if she. Uh, uh, wasn't sort of found to be safe. Now, as we've sort of started to record this, the most recent development now is that uh, uh, Peng Shui is now saying that my statement was misinterpreted. You know, I mean, hard to see given it was pretty clearly written, Uh, but that kind of is indicative, I think, of maybe some of the pressure she's coming under. But we've obviously had, we speculated on this, but we've had the Beijing Olympics now. We've seen diplomatic Uh, boycotts happening uh, by a number of nations, Australia and the United States among them. Uh, We also had seen some the US House voting to ban imports from Xinjiang. So where where are things at now in terms of US response to human rights violations um, as they intersect with geopolitics involving uh, the CCP? Yeah. Wow. A lot has happened, right, in the last few weeks. It's kind of insane. I mean, the we it's you know, what's so amazing is that when we spoke a month ago, we talked about Peng Shui and how concerned we were. And we talked about it in the context of what does this mean for the Olympics coming up, right? And so to have the US issue this diplomatic boycott is a really big deal. And I know for one, I'm personally excited to see this become a trend where you have countries come out and say, 
you know, we don't think that that states that are repressive and abusive should be allowed to host these international sporting events or other events because it gives them a certain level of rep, you know, a clean reputation. It glorifies them. They get revenue from it and so on. Right. Right. So I love it. And I love Australia followed the UK followed. I, you know, this is exactly the type of thing you want to see. The International Olympic Committee has a lot of work to be done. I mean, the way the way they've kissed the Chinese regime's ass is un, is something it's unbelievable. Yeah, and Dick, Dick Pound's statements that he was satisfied that Peng Shui was safe uh, because they had a Zoom chat, uh, pretty average to say the least. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, really, don't trust anybody named Dick Pound first of all. And then right, <laughs> if, if that's if like that's the first when I when I first saw the, the name of the of the leader of of the international of, the, of their national Olympic Committee, I could I kept. Looking, I was like, that can't be for real, right? That's, you should probably sit with Richard Pound, maybe. I don't know. but uh, Perhaps. He probably should have gone that way. Yes, that would have been a smarter move from a PR perspective. Um, it, and, you know, but, but, but the thing that I really liked is that the way he came out, so wishy-washy, looking like he's really bending toward the Chinese regime, everybody around the world noticed that and saw that as something really wrong. Whereas years ago, nobody would have said anything. Years ago, people would have been like, oh, you know, that's just how things are. That's how it works. And so I love seeing the tides shift in this way, but it's all of the timing of this is not coincidental. The fact that you had this boycott, the fact that now you have Congress debating, the US Congress debating, uh, banning all exports from the Xinjiang region, right? You have China on the other side of these really tough policies. And you have Russia also on the side of these tough policies. Right. And it's growing every week. So the fact that they're seeing solace in each other, on my show, I called it Bumble for Dictators. Um, is, <laughs> it, it's not surprising. It's common. Um Thug governments always work together. It's how, you know, that's, they're going to want to trade with each other. They're going to want to find ways to do finance with each other. Um, They're going to want to find ways to beef up their security together so that they find, you know, that they have this united front. Um, The Chinese though, I have less hope in changing their behavior than I do with the Russians. Um, Although the situation with Russia is extremely precarious, Russia is not coming from a position of strength the way China is. China's economy is obviously still extremely strong. Russia's economy is in the shitter. We're allowed to curse here, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's a podcast. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Um, And and Russia has that working against them. So the threat of sanctions is going to be a much more credible threat to the Russian government than to the Chinese at this stage, because the Chinese are very strong and they are they have presence all over the world. Um, so it's gonna it's gonna take a while to see any kind of any kind of change. But I do think you know what going back to Peng Shui quickly, to see her come out again with this fabricated statement just reinforces how strong this government is and that they are not willing to bend just yet to well, international pressure. Let's talk about. Yeah, but I mean, I I think it's I mean it's a watch this space there with Peng Shui. I, I think that is going to be a, a a festering sore for the regime, and every move they make seems to make it worse. But Russia and China, you know, they've had this teleconference. Um, you know, you, people sort of say look, that they're friends of convenience, and, and and there's certain actions that are happening around the world that are sort of drawing them together. Um, now, of course, Nixon in 72, rec- part of the reason of recognising um, the PRC at the time was to pull them away from the Soviet Union as it was then. 
Um, but, you know, there's all this speculation now. There was a you know, piece of analysis done talking about, well, if Ukraine was invaded by Russia and Taiwan was invaded by the CCP on a simultaneous basis, the United States could not win both of those conflicts simultaneously, um, which may or may not be true. We don't know. It's a war gaming kind of theory, but also kind of presupposes the US would be on its own. But kind of just curious about what are the motivations and you know, how concerned should we be about this sort of deepening coordination between uh, uh, Russia and the CCP? Well, on one hand, it's not abnormal, right? I mean, it's almost like the 2021 version of the axis of evil. And it's so it's normal for these guys to, to partner together. And they're not perfect friends, as you just said, right? There are things that that they will find ways to strengthen each other through this partnership. So for example, they're gonna circumvent sanctions more by doing banking and finance with each other. Um, the more Russia becomes isolated economically by everybody else, Russia will find China there to do trade with. So that's all gonna strengthen, right? And then, and what I, I do get concerned on the aggressive front, really with things like cyber activity, right? These are two countries that uh, are very active in the malign cyberspace. They have both hacked, uh, they've pursued hacks in Australia, they have pursued hacks in the United States. And having that kind of partnership gives me a little bit, uh, gives me a lot of concern in particular. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's not new. On the, and the UN Security Council, they have often partnered in, in, shutting down resolutions proposed by the United States and by European states. So that's not new, but uh, I think it'll only go so far, right? Like I found there was a difference in messaging coming from each government as well. The right. Chinese felt uh, like it seemed a bit more of a PR campaign to say that this was strategic cooperation, whereas the Russians were more, uh, you know, they were tempered and it was like, well, this is not an alliance, but it's a friend where we have mutual interests. Um, and I think, and I think it'll, I, I think it'll really honestly be more of the same. I think a little bit of it is, is a PR campaign to, yeah. to put everybody on their heels, but it's not that new at the end of the day. I mean, and Putin, I mean, you know, you look at some of these stories, he, he doesn't love the idea of an, a very, very strong, uh, CCP on his doorstep either, right? I mean, that is on the doorstep of, of Russia as much as it is on uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific and you know, uh, Asia-Pacific nations. So, um, no, it's definitely an interesting one. And, uh, you know, th those two leading autocracies as part of a bigger club of autocracies is a concern. And Applebaum actually wrote a really beautiful piece on this for those interested in um, in the Atlantic, which I would recommend. I know, I think I might've stolen it from you. You're nodding at me. So, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a great piece. But now... Just shifting to uh, the other big autocracy, Facebook, um, the big unaccountable government, uh, the, they just got sued uh, in relation to the Rohingya genocide. And I think there's kind of an interesting sort of, sort of maybe a watershed moment, but an interesting dynamic now in how information is being treated that leads to actions um, you know, in nations or, or bad behaviour. So, I mean, maybe talk us through that and how big a deal it is. It's, I think this, I'm so glad we're talking about this because I think it's such a big deal. And it did not get the attention here in the United States that I thought was merited because you're talking about a group of individuals who sued. So for those of you listening who don't know the background story, a, a Rohingya refugee here in the United States filed a $150 billion, billion with a B, dollar lawsuit 
against Facebook for perpetuating the genocide against the Rohingya in 2017 in Myanmar. And she did it on behalf of 10,000 Rohingya refugees in the United States. And a similar lawsuit is scheduled to be filed in the UK as well um, from, from there representing refugees over there. And first, you have the fact that a social media platform is being accused of perpetuating genocide, which is a big deal. And the fact of the matter is, and Facebook admitted to these faults, by the way, uh, years ago. The fact of the matter is that posts that that fueled hatred and violence on Facebook in Myanmar in the months and years leading up to the genocide, those posts were amplified. And many of them were either spread really either spread really fast. Some of them were falsehoods. Some of them were doctored images. And they were, they were shared repeatedly by influential figures in Myanmar. They were shared by government officials. This is all fact. And the United Nations came out in 2018 to say that Facebook, uh, that the way they behaved was irresponsible and that they didn't do anything. They had no resources really to pay attention. The resources they had, they had like one or two monitors, not even based in the country, who didn't understand the political environment there, who did nothing to take these posts down in a timely manner or at all. And the thing that I that I will find fascinating is first, if a social media giant like Facebook can be legally culpable, found to be culpable in perpetuating genocide, then it really might finally push these social media platforms, all of them, to take the spread of hate um, and hate speech and violence much more seriously and, and pour resources into that. And I'm gonna make one final comment on it because I don't wanna ramble too much about it, but I'd love your opinion on this. So I come from the sanctions world. I tend to view things in that lens all the time. And I've always said that it always surprised me what social media companies could get away with that banks can't. And I know that banks and social media platforms are totally different, but the way people can make anonymous accounts on social media platforms, the what, what the, the activity they can pursue, it, if you compare it to a bank, makes absolutely no sense. But our banks at one point, you could also at one point have an anonymous account. That all changed in the 1980s here in the United States and for many countries around the world in order to fight money laundering. And I think that the social media platforms are also on this cusp where compliance can no longer be viewed as a burden the way it was for banks and it will be viewed, it has to shift where it will be viewed as an integral part of their reputation and business. And I hope that this is what will get us there. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, that's a really interesting comparison. I mean, I often think of social media in the same way as I think, you know, if we're going through this information revolution, um, I think of it as in the same way as the industrial revolution where we had these sort of factories open up and all these new goods being produced. And they said, well, if you want all these goods being produced, you're going to have to put up with poisoned rivers and child labour and all sorts of outrageous things. And society said, well, hang on a minute, we would probably like to have uh, reasonable civilised working conditions and a nice environment and all these consumer goods. And, you know, the social media companies are a little bit like that saying, oh, well, you know, you either have this convenience or, or, or nothing, right? And, you know, they, when Australia was talking about uh, taxing and regulating Facebook, they basically turned Facebook off for a day as a bit of a, you'll miss us when we're gone. And certainly it was stark, right, about how much we've come to rely on those platforms. But I think you're right. I mean, the idea, and, you know, I think for a long time it became sort of enshrined in uh, kind of at least sort of, you know, popularity or popular myth that online anonymity was a good thing. It allowed you to stand up to governments and, 
you know, the, uh, the, the Arab spring is kind of cited as a time where people are using Twitter to coordinate and speak out, et cetera. But the, absolute negative consequences that we now see um in our discourse so they're polluting our discourse in the same way they're polluting the environment back in the uh in the uh uh you know the industrial revolution i just think it, you can't have that right and you're talking about anonymity i mean people say things anonymously online they would never say in person we know all that but the collective the collective you know sort of toxic effect on democracy is undoubted right so we definitely have to put the onus on them to fix it. I think there's some onus on people as well to kind of learn how to use these tools, like a little bit more civilised, right? But, you know, I was interesting, I was just listening to a, uh, an interview with uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who was, uh, you yeah, you'd remember him. He's had to resign after making some very negative comments about President Obama and the administration when he was in charge of the Afghanistan mission, but his legendary general. And he's talking about misinformation. He considers it the number one threat uh, to societies. And his view is, you know, we all think we're smart, right? Smart people think they're smart and they think, well, I can tell the difference. But the truth of the matter is these are so brilliantly calibrated now that at least some of us are going to fall prey to it, whether or not we, you know, not all of us, but some of us and enough of us. And if enough of us fall prey to these conspiracy theories and disinformation and enough of us fall prey to enough of them, so to speak, that's what's pulling us all apart. So that was the way he framed it. I thought it was a really good way of framing it. And I think... Um, yeah, the case for regulating is huge. And, you know, you know, we know the business community understands money, right? So if the $150 billion, I'm sure this man but in that, but if the $150 billion lawsuit were to get up, that I think you'd see um, some changed behaviour, right? So I think that's um, a critical development. So we'll definitely watch that one with interest. Now, shifting, now I'm a great, great segue, shifting into UK politics. Um, so much going on there, right? Um, obviously in the throes of a big, um, sort of surge in Omicron cases, but um, Boris Johnson, um, he he's yeah, unsurprisingly, fact and reality are catching up with Boris Johnson. It would appear, but his personal uh, approval ratings are in the absolute toilet. Um, uh, you know, he's got net negatives. I think of around forty or fifty percent, which are just extraordinary if you're a political person. And uh, that's played out now with these holiday parties that occurred uh, when everyone was locked down and, and we saw a huge backlash against the Tory party in some special elections where essentially they were turfed out of seat that they never lose. So what do you, how do you see all that going on at the moment and what do you see happening for Boris and what does this mean? You know, this, it's, this is such a fascinating development. Um, and I'm, I'm going to, I want to start off by noting that, that while I, in my own opinion, don't believe that Bojo is great for, for UK politics. Um, he's great for my show because I get to him, but I do. It, <laughs> it, is, it is incessant content coming from yeah. him because he is so utterly ridiculous and such a character that he is so much fun to make fun of um, for somebody who likes political satire and impersonations. And I would be sad to see the wig go. So for those of you who haven't seen it, please check out my show and I can, you will see my impersonations of, of Boris Johnson. <laughs> and it's just, I would be sad. I'm going to have to find somebody new but 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 it's what it's fascinating because his ridiculousness is is catching up with him right what what at first was seen as something that set him apart that where i think a lot of people felt that they related to him um and now is becoming a lot a major political liability and his own his own party members seem to also agree with that which is what's so fascinating the recent election 
that where they lost ground was in an area like you just mentioned that is conservative. So this is not an area where they should have lost. Um, and that, that, you know, so that's, you have that, that's, that's a big sign already as it is the, the holiday party that you mentioned, the thing that is so damning about that holiday party, right? It sounds like it shouldn't be a big deal. This is something that happened last year, but the reason, you know, and for the, for the listeners, if you haven't seen this news, basically what happened was that a video, an old video was leaked where you had the former spokesperson uh, for the prime minister uh, pretending to do a briefing where she was being asked about this holiday party that took place among Boris Johnson's staff. And so he apparently he wasn't there. It was his staff. He alleges that he didn't know about the party. But this was last year where, you know, during the pandemic, there are no vaccines. The UK was facing a number of lockdowns. And so it it almost made it seem in hindsight like they the rules don't apply to them. Right. And that's that is the that is a death knell in politics. You cannot behave that 100%. way. Um, and especially not in a repressive government, right? Not in a in an authoritarian state. Um, and so these things really seem to be eating at him. And and you gotta wonder how much time he has left. It's really interesting. I'm telling you, I have to find somebody new to make fun of, <laughs> a new wig to find. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's not it's not looking good for him for 2022. Honestly, no, I don't no, know. What not. do you think? No, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's interesting because for a long time we sort of looked at guys like Johnson and Trump, and people put them together, which I don't think is right because there's a darkness to Trump that Johnson isn't. Right, so he tried to, to sort of be this sort of you know, core blimey, you know, rural Britannia type, right? But he's just, he's cynical. He, so Trump and Johnson share a cynicism, right? And a, and a want to entertain, but they are different. Whereas Trump is based on grievance. Johnson's based on sort of like populism, right? And sort of just trying to um, effectively bullshit people that, you know, complex problems can have simple answers. Uh, but I think what's interesting for both Johnson and, and certainly Trump given the 2020 outcome uh, that reality does catch up with these people in the end. You know, they, they, we sort of sit there and go, how can it be that all this sort of, you know, they, they can sort of just, you know, sandpaper the truth as Boris Johnson describes it or, you know, Trump just literally denying, you know, you know alternative facts, et cetera. But in the end, enough people seem to catch up with their nonsense. And I think the hypocrisy is a big one that you pointed out. But, yeah, Johnson's in big strife. The question becomes how simple is it to replace him? It's not. And a lot of the, you know, the, the characters that are there um, are not dominant characters in the way that he was stalking May. Um, there's not an sort of an obvious replacement, um, but it, it, it's certainly, it's certainly an interesting one. And it will be, will be interesting to see, can he survive because a general's not due for a very long time. Um, so, you know, UK politics has been certainly pretty wild uh, since Brexit the interesting thing that the big thing that I take out of it is that the Brexit coalition, which essentially was a bunch of you know Thatcherite small government types who just hate the European Union, and nationalist protectionist types, people that were like you know we want to go back to the way the world used to be, we want manufacturing, etc. Which you know there's a lot of good sort of policy dynamics to that, and you know you see that in the way that. Uh, the Biden administration has kind of supported some of the moves um, that uh, the Trump administration made in the economic space. But that's that, that you had a resignation from Johnson's cabinet, that kind of Thatcherite type, low government, low taxing type. That coalition without Brexit to talk about starts to pull apart, right? Because they go, well, hang on a second. No, we think we should be doing 
these things like, you know, all that investment that Johnson's doing in the Northern seats that, you know, they call it, the, you know, I, I can't remember the exact phrase for it, but that big investment that Plan he has for those Northern cities because they, they all voted for him. That's not supported by your Thatcherite types, right? So trying to hold that coalition together may be impossible for Johnson and that might be what brings him undone. Now, I don't have any kind of music, but we're going to go to our final sort of the John Dory. Da, 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 da. You know, what's the thing that's on your mind, the story? What is the John Dory? Now, the thing that you wanted to talk about was squid game diplomacy and squid game politics and how that's playing out in Korea. So why don't you jump to that and tell us about that? Because it's a pretty crazy uh, story. It's crazy and sad. And so, you know, and ironically, I just started watching Squid Game myself. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I have super. not, but uh, I've certainly, it's impossible to escape it. Oh, it's it's impossible to escape. And it was my husband's idea. We, you know, I he, he was like, oh, let's watch this. And there's not a lot we like to watch together. So I said, yes. And it is so dark. There are a lot of moments I just have to kind of shut my eyes. And I keep trying to remember that this is a, this is a, a, a series that where the writers have said to not focus on the dark aspects and right. to try and look at it as from a psychological sociological standpoint of how people interact with each other and the moral dilemmas they face and so on so okay i have an open mind to it but anyway i saw this news that is just kind of heartbreaking where a student smuggled squid games a squid game on a flash drive into North Korea from China to North Korea and sold it to other students uh, in North Korea. And so the smuggler and then one of the students who bought the flash drive have been sentenced to death and, by firing squad. And then the other students who bought and or just watched Squid Game have been sentenced to five years hard labor. And it's just, you know, I mean, we. Yeah, it's listen, extraordinarily. We it's shocking, right? I mean, it's unbelievable to think something like that could be going on. Oh, it's painful, and I, I know that North Korea is this is is in and of itself a dystopian world, and so I'm not trying to. I don't want to be totally surprised, but there were, you know, first as a mom of of kids, the just the idea that your kid for watching something could land in trouble this mm. way mm. for watching something just broke my heart, but also. Um, it, it The thing that concerned me as well is that one of the ways in which human rights activists try to try to spread information and news about democracy and how the life is on the outside is through these flash drives, right? There are a lot of campaigns. One of them is by the Human Rights Foundation where they, they basically parachute right. in flash drives into North Korea. And, and now the North Korean regime is really going to be cracking down on this. And so all of this was very concerning. And it also made no sense, given that North and South Korea, I think about a week ago, just announced that they intend to end, formally declare the end to the North-South Korea war. So it, you know, every time it seems as though North Korea is taking a step forward, it takes 10 steps back. Right. No, totally. Now, uh, I mean, that is just a shocking, awful story. Uh now, the thing that uh, I'm sort of watching, the John Dory I'm watching, I think is we might have been an interesting pivot point in vaccine diplomacy um, caused by Omicron. Now, we don't know yet, but some of the, I saw a story in the New York Times and it would appear, and this might explain why there's such a big surge in the United Kingdom, which is uh, very dependent on AstraZeneca. It would appear that the mRNA vaccine, so Pfizer, Moderna, are more effective um, against, uh, against the Omicron variant. Um, so 
the sort of the CCP have been pushing around Sinovax. You've had Russia push around Sputnik Piat or Sputnik V, uh, depending on how you call it. So they have been um, really quite successful in pushing these vaccines around, and they the efficacy of them is not as good as the the Western variants, the US ones, or uh, or the UK, United Kingdom ones, but they have been actually oddly enough, the Russian one's pretty good, uh, but they're not very successful against Omicron. So certainly possible that one um, now the CCP have been running a zero COVID strategy still surprisingly, and so but they will struggle to keep Omicron out, and if their vaccine is not successful, they could be really hit quite heavily. Um, so it, it's one thing to watch is are they going to be hit in the way perhaps that India was hit on Delta, but the other thing is. The world is now going to be looking for mRNA vaccines. Um, I think, you know, the Biden administration said they've got a billion vaccines they're happy to give to anyone and everyone. And this could be a bit of a pivot point. Going right back to the beginning of our conversation about uh, democratic values and how do you push soft power, I think, you know, the Western model of superior innovation and being able to show people, you know, what, you know, market-led free societies that can innovate can produce better outcomes for people um, that's what worked in the uh, in the 80s and the, you know, in the last time we had this systems competition. And so it could be an interesting turning point because up until now, you know, the chaos of the response in the United States and, and, and parts of democracies because of the messiness and the difficulty in, in having to, you know, control populations the way you can't with autocracies, um, they've been sort of pointing and saying, look at these clowns, right? We've got, we've got vaccines, they've got chaos, um, and uh, our response has been superior. That could make, perhaps in 2022, that could start to shift the other way. So that's a watch this space one for me. Now, um, given that uh, we are well over time as ever, we, uh, we, we promise ourselves we're going to do half an hour. We seem to go well above it. But um, thanks so much yet again for coming on, Hagar. Um, for those of you who have not yet listened, get the plug in, Hagar. Watch a show, the Oh My World show. It's a short, sharp review of every week. You get to see Hagar in, for now at least, the UK Prime Minister Wiggs, um, and uh, make sure you're following her on Instagram, social media. Feel free to get the plug in now uh, before we let our listeners go enjoy their Christmas. Thank you so much, Misha. It's been such a fun, it's such a pleasure as always talking to you. We have so much fun. Um, and yes, I appreciate the plug-in. Uh, please go ahead, go to Oh My World on YouTube. Please subscribe. It's obviously free. It's 10 minutes once a week where we cover the top world news stories in a fun and easy way. And there's a lot of political satire and impersonations and accents. In fact, next time I impersonate Russian President Putin, which was this last week, I will, I will reach out to you. I bet you, you have a good accent to share with me. As I heard when you mentioned the, the vaccine, I was like, oh, that was a good accent. Oh, I have a, well, I have a Russian background, but I mean, you know, like I, I uh, my uh, critique of uh, the uh, various autocracies around the world's already built me a pretty big file. Uh, so I don't know if I need to add impersonation to it as well, but it's a 10 minute show, but it is a highly produced. So it must take you hours to get it all together. So it is, it's really well put together show and it's great to see. Uh, a fun and entertaining, educational, and uh, appealing to people's uh, increasingly shortened, uh, <laughs> shortened attention spans. But Merry Christmas, mate. Stay safe and we'll catch up in the new year. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you guys in the new year as well. Thank you so much. And likewise, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. See you, Hagar. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes 
or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, producer Jim Mintz. <laughs>